We're in the book of Acts. We are traveling through it, coming to this last section. So grab your Bible, Acts 24, we'll read, and then we'll talk a bit. Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned, key term there, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Jesus, again, we are grateful to be called your people. We're grateful that you have saved us grateful for the rich rewards that lay ahead of each one of us. We're grateful. And I pray that gratitude would continue to spur us and move us to partner with you in kingdom work and seeing souls saved. So may you equip us in that today. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So I thought about this because I don't think many people do it anymore, but I, I want to ask who here has ever gone door to door witnessing? Open your hand or raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a 1980s thing, right? Like Jehovah's Witnesses, I think are the only one that continue that. But if you did that, and I did as a kid, was it awkward? Yes. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it? So um, in the school of ministry, I went there from uh, 97 through most of 98. We had to go every Friday, we had to go out and share the gospel. So it's good. Keep sharing the gospel. So we'd be, I'd go to Medford. And if I went to Medford, we'd go to the mall and just walk around the mall and randomly try to engage people in conversations. Uh, and then sometimes I go to Ashland. It was awesome. <laughs> I'd leave there more confused. I'm like, oh my, what in the world? Who, who am I? And then sometimes I'd be sent to Grant's Pass. And I'm like, if I came to Grant's Pass, we'd go back then right out in front of the Dutch house. So I'd be out in front of the Dutch house with my Bible. And every time I came here, I'd see someone I knew. So they'd be like, hey, Matt, what are you doing? I'd see someone from work that I'd work with as an engineer. Like, Matt, what are you doing? Sharing Jesus. Look at the time. Man, I need to go comb my hair. <laughs> right? So we've all, we all kind of do those things. Um, I had a guy here a couple of weeks ago. Great guy. He's super smart guy. Actually lives in Portland. He said this, that uh, he was out just in Portland and someone had told him, hey, those guys over there are offering coupons for free ice cream if 
they can ask you a question. So we went over there and engaged them and they were gonna share about Jesus. So I was like, I was there last weekend up in Portland. So I tried to find them. I'm like, free ice cream? Ask me whatever you want. I want ice cream. So there's that way. Like, does that work? There's all these kind of methods about that, that we're given or we're taught because most of us feel a little bit of, of a urge to share about Jesus. Like it's actually the great commission that we're supposed to be doing that. So then you get into some kind of ways of doing that. So how do you do that well? Well, welcome to the last section of Acts because what it is, is Paul in prison, sharing Jesus with all kinds of different people. And he does it different every time. So it's like this manual where you're like, ah, man, that's a pretty brilliant way to share Jesus, right? So he is now really at this point, 24 forward, he's sharing with kings, governors, important people. And this guy comes in, his name is Felix. I call him Felix the rat because he's a bad dude. He was a freed slave who made his way up. And when he got to the top, he is now pretty much the ruler of the area of Israel and Syria. He's the top guy. He was ruthless. He would start riots just to go in there, quell them and have martial law to do what he wanted to do. Took bribes for anything. His wife, Drusilla, is not his first wife. Although her name was also Drusilla. So he was married to Drusilla the first for about a year. And then when he moved in this area, he saw Drusilla the second. And according to history, she was one of the most beautiful women in the world. Just a stunning million followers on Instagram, that kind of gal, right? <laughs> Big time. And so he's like, woo, I want her. And depending on who you read, one ancient commentary says that he hired a magician who cast a spell on her to fall in love with him. Everyone would like to know that magician. Probably not the case. This is probably the case. His name actually means happy. Felix, the, the Latin of it means happy. So he probably told Drusilla the second, listen, you come over here and I'll make you happy. I'll give you whatever you want. So Drusilla the second ditched her husband and then now is married to Felix. So that's this kind of guy, right? And what's fascinating about history, we have two named people that we know perished in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius exploded. One is Pliny the Elder. He's the guy that wrote a bunch. The second, Drusilla from our story right here. Here she was partying in Pompeii and one night it ended brutally, right? So this is the crew that now Paul is interacting with, right? It's the reality stars. It's keeping up with the Kardashians. It's the real housewives of Wolf Creek. It's like a rough crew. And so now he's got to try to figure out how do I take this good news that I've experienced and has transformed my life? How do I take that good news and how do I now present it to these people like Felix? And this is what he does. He gives the classic three-point message. Righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. So that's what we're going to do today. Righteousness. What's righteousness? It's a standard, right? Either you're righteous or you are unrighteous. It's a standard. 
And the, the Bible, if you've read it, and I hope you have, provides all kinds of like standards, like don't do this and do do this. Like there's a lot of laws in it. And all that is doing is saying this, if you do this, it's righteous. And if you don't do it, you're unrighteous. If you don't have a standard, how do you ever determine what is right or what is wrong? You can't. So a couple of Wednesdays ago, I shared with the crew there that you, you, the, the law is the standard. If there's not a law, then you, you don't know anything. It provides a standard. And I gave the illustration like this. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, I was working as an engineer and I had this assignment out in Missoula, Montana to go to this smoke jump center to set up our equipment. So I go out there and I knew this at that time in Montana on the freeways, there was no speed limit. There was no law. You just had to drive reasonably. So I got there with a rental car and I drove unreasonably, like total fun. So I get there, I get to this site that we were setting it up at and I pull up and I was meeting two people there and I, I, I'm next to this car and I knew it was the, a, a gal's car. So I'm kind of looking in the car to see if I can see anything in there that might be a good conversation thing because I was part salesman. So I'm kind of looking at her car like, is there something in there? Is there a book? Is there a newspaper? And as, as I'm walking by, I notice there is an open beer in the middle console. I was like, well, probably can't talk about that, but hmm, okay. So I do their business. That night, we're having dinner and somehow that comes up. I'm like, man, that was bold. I mean, open container in your car? And she looked at me and says, it's legal in Montana. I said, what? She goes, oh yeah, once you get out of city limits, you can pop open a beer as long as you're not drunk. I said, so, so let me get this straight. You can drive as fast as you want and drink beer at the same time. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I cannot believe this. I come home, here's the best part. I come home, I tell my buddies about that. One of them, his name is Derek, moved there right away. I'm living there. Okay, he's still there. <laughs> that's where I'm living, man. Are you kidding me? Okay, it, nothing's unrighteous there. Speeding, open container, why? Because there's no law, there's no standard. You do what you want, okay? So what the Bible does is it provides what it calls a righteous standard. And you can go to the Old Testament 613 laws to get your righteous standard. You can go to the ethic that Jesus gives. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself for that ethic. Or some churches, they go to the brethren, for instance, they go to the Sermon on the Mount as the ethic of the kingdom, that we keep the Sermon on the Mount because that is the righteous standard. So what Paul does is he simply says, Hey, there's a standard, a righteous standard. Get it from where you need to get it from, but there's righteousness. That was number one. Point number two, self-control. So if righteousness is the standard, then I'll give away my point. Self-control is our failure. To control the self is our failure. And most likely, most commentary would say this, that when Paul's talking about self-control, there's actually some some linguistic stuff in there as well. When he talks about self-control, he's probably talking about sexual stuff because of these two party animals, because in Rome by this point, Rome was highly sexualized. So if you know the history of Rome in 200 BC, conservative, hyper-conservative, God, family, country. 200 years later, 60 AD, when this is happening, oh my goodness, Rome is hyper-sexualized kind of like America. 
Go back in our history, conservative. Now we are probably the most hyper-sexualized culture in history. And I'll give you a statistic that I think spells it out. So I read this survey on millennials and millennials say this, it is more immoral to not recycle than to watch pornography. So their ethic now, the ethic that is in our, you know, the majority of millennials is this. It is more, it's more wrong, more incorrect to not recycle than to hop on my computer and watch pornography. Why? Because we are hyper, hyper sexualized. And the problem with that is this. The problem with casual sex, the problem with casual sex is this. It hurts people. So C.S. Lewis maybe has the best analogy of it. He says this. Casual sex is like a person who wants to eat food and after they're done eating it, to put their finger down their throat and vomit it up. Because sex is actually the uniting of two people. It's saying, I want you to become part of me and I want to become part of you. I wanna be united with your soul. And that happens in that sexual act. And then all of a sudden it's when the sexual act is done, I don't still wanna be a part of you. I now want to separate from you. And it's like vomiting out what should become a part of you. So like bulimia ravages the body, casual sex does the same thing. And what, we, what happens in a culture is this, I believe. When a culture says, you know what? No to God and no to his approval, there's a vacuum created. And inside of that vacuum, it'll suck something into it. And our culture today has sucked sex into that vacuum. And so now what most people need is this. We need somebody godlike, goddess-like, super attractive, like Felix, happy, powerful, rich. Somebody that we, oh, if I can only get their approval, then I'll feel like I'm righteous. Then I'll feel like I'm loved. Then I'll feel like I've passed. And so that's what people seek, seek now. The approval of somebody that they put in that category for God. Oh, they're this. And if I can only get their approval, I'm happy, right? But it doesn't work. So I always kind of try to keep my ear to what's happening culturally in this area. And I'll read a book every once in a while. They're hard for me to read. Um, like Laura Sessions' Step, her book, Unhooked, a decade ago, just grievous to my soul. And then two years ago, I read a book by Peggy Ornstein, not a Christian at all, not coming from a Christian perspective called Girls and Sex. I don't know if I've cried as much in a book as I did reading that book, seeing the damage to young people's souls. And she's just writing just, hey, this is what we're finding. This is science. This is, and then interviewing girls and the tales that they tell about being chewed up and spit out. Because what they really want is to be somebody, be with somebody that they can be naked and ashamed with. I just want naked and unashamed with, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah, scrub that. It's Genesis 2. I want to be naked and unashamed with you. I want you to love me. I want to be your beloved. For a moment, I want that. And they, they think they get it for a moment and then rip back apart and just hurts their soul. It hurts them. And that's what that book just says. Just, well, what are we going to do about that? How do we deal with that? It's sad to me. It's sad to me. Because we're all looking for the approval of a God and we replace it with a person, it'll damage your soul. That's what we're finding. And I don't want to rabbit trail on relationships, but I will say this. I think the Bible gives two ways that relationships work. Lust and honor. 
Lust, this is what Jesus says. It's Matthew chapter five, verse 27 through 30. He says this, talking about lust. He says, if you drive relationships with lust, it leads to hell. And so Jesus, in that text, you know it. He says, if that's what's happening to you, if your eye is causing you to lust, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. If your arm is causing you to lust, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off, right? Why? Because it's so bad. The repercussions of this are so bad. You have to get radical, radical, right? Now, is he literally saying, poke out your eye or cut off your arm when it comes to lust? No. I mean, if you really want to take care of the problem, he's talking about cutting off the wrong thing. Let's be honest, okay? what, What he's saying is you gotta go nuclear on this. It's so damaging. It will bring so much hell to you. You have to go nuclear on it, right? So lust, that's what brings hell. But if you read 1 Thessalonians, especially chapter four, the idea there is this, honor marriage. Honor marriage and it brings heaven. Well, how do you honor marriage? Maybe like this. And this is a story I've told before. Happened about two and a half years ago. It was my 16th wedding anniversary. So I grabbed charity. We went out to eat at a local restaurant and we're there and the waitress finds out, oh, 16 years. Wow, man, you guys have been married so long. I'm thinking 16 years is a long time now. Just doesn't seem that long to me. Oh, okay, great. What's your secret? What's the secret of you guys staying together? And to this day, I don't know why I said this, but I just looked at her and I said, because I promised. <laughs> I promised and that's it. She just looked at me and goes, oh, let me get your appetizer. And just boom, she's out of there. And she's expecting me to say, oh, because we love each other or whatever. No. You know, in that moment, I think I actually said the right answer. Because the only way a relationship can grow and be that all that God wants for it is for two people to say, I am so committed to you. You can't scare me away. You can tell me anything. You can be naked and unashamed with me emotionally, physically, psychologically, and you will not scare me away, period. And then you can grow. It's when someone fears that there's no promise there. There's no commitment there. That you have to walk on eggshells. You have to be worried, "Uh uh-oh, will I scare him away? Will I scare her away? I can't really let them know me. And the relationship is never brilliant and heavenly. I think it's actually right. You're either gonna lust and it'll bring hell or you're gonna honor and it'll bring heaven, right? That's self-control. Now you can zoom back from just one part of you know, self-control, which is sex, but you can zoom back because all self-control is controlling the self. So here's this righteous standard that we all know at some level and self-control is, I wanna try to attain that righteous standard. But here's what we all find. We can't actually keep it. Whatever standard we have, we can't actually keep it. We can't be righteous. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's what he's trying to do. So he begins to give these examples. And he says this, the law that you thought was just about outward, there's my son, Lodge. (laughs) He does that to me at home too. He's going to get it when I get home. <laughs> oh. Boys, man, honor your father. It will go well with you. <laughs> so self-control, back to what I really need to be doing about. 
Self-control is controlling the self to this righteous standard. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, you think this standard is just about outward behavior. It's much deeper than that. It's actually the movement of your soul towards evil. So he begins to give real life examples. He says, you haven't murdered your neighbor. Awesome, right? Who's murdered their neighbor? Anybody? Okay, that's super easy, right? That's low bar, super low bar. Kindergarten, not even that, one-year-old morality. But then Jesus, he goes on, right? You ever been annoyed with your neighbor? (laughs) Yeah, someone giggles, yeah, right? Did you hear about the lady in Slovakia? Just this week, I heard on the news. Nobody? Oh man, this is so good. So this lady in Slovakia has a neighbor with a barking dog that began to drive her. Someone's over here. Oh, that's all you gotta say. Barking dog, we're good. <laughs> so she just is like, ah. So she gets this big stereo system. She gets this opera song that's four minutes long. She starts to play this opera song full blast. It's four minutes on repeat. She does that 24 hours for one day, two days, five days, five months, one year. The person with the dog leaves. She still plays it for five years, 10 years, 16 years, same song, full blast on repeat. And then finally she got arrested. I just say, she's got the kindest neighbors in the world that they didn't break into her home and just destroy that sound system. Right? Okay. So Jesus says, you haven't killed your neighbor. Great. But have you been angry at him? Because if you have, you're in danger of the judgment. You're in danger. Why? Because it's a movement of your soul. That's what it actually is. And then he goes on to say, all right, you haven't committed adultery with your neighbor's wife. Congratulations right? Low bar morality. But then Jesus says, have you ever looked at another person with lust in your heart? Because you've already committed adultery. Anybody look lustfully at somebody? Right? So if you're sitting there right now saying, no, I passed both those. Never been angry, never been lustful. Number one, do you have a pulse? Are you alive? (laughs) And then Jesus just finishes off that section by saying this, be perfect like God. That's the righteous standard. Anyone's, yeah, that's me. Pretty much perfect like God. That's the standard. So the standard is to show you and me, we fail. And I don't think we even need those kind of things to show us that. Every one of us, I think in our hearts, we sense failure. That we have even in our own ideals of, this is the righteous standard. This is what I want to be. Anyone reaching their ideal self? That's why there's so many self-help books. That's why Tony Robbins makes $100 billion a day because people wanting to reach their ideal self. I I should be on social media less. I should work harder. I should get up earlier. I should be a better friend. You just name it, right? All of us feel this weight of lack of self-control for a righteous standard that we set for ourselves. And what that does is this, it begins to weigh down your soul. And some people just say, you know what? Forget it. I'm going varsity on failure. They do that very often because it's just sunk them. I can't even do it. That's what Paul's preaching. There's this righteous standard. You have it. You're failing at it because you don't have self-control. And then his final point is, and because of that, there's consequences. And that consequence is coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed. You're not righteous. 
you failed, and you're going to be judged. Wait a second, Matt. I thought God was a God of love. He is. And he's going to judge? Totally. If God did not judge evil, I would say he would not be good. If God is not a just God and cares about the things that have hurt his good creation, he is not a good God. He's not a loving God. Miroslav Volf, a Harvard professor who lived through the ethnic cleansings in Kosovo, he said this. He said, a God who does not judge could only be birthed in the quiet of a suburban American home. It would never work in Pol Pot's Cambodia, end quote. See, the reason why we might believe God will never judge is because we haven't seen the real face of evil that many people in the world have seen. And people that have really faced evil and really had evil done to them, they think the best news in the world is that God is gonna judge. They think that is awesome. That's good. I would say if God does not judge the communist regimes that have trampled on people, he's not good. If God does not judge the system of apartheid that told a whole group of people, you're second class, he's not good. If God does not judge what's happening with ISIS right now, child molesters, rape, if God does not judge those things, he's not good. But the Bible says this, vengeance is mine. I will repay, Romans 12, 18. There is coming judgment, 100%. Because the righteous standard has not been met, because we are failing at it, that failure brings a consequence that God will judge. And it's until you understand God is the judge, you will never be able to forgive somebody that's hurt you. It's only when you truly understand, I can outsource this to God, vengeance is his, that you can say, and I forgive that person. I release that weight, that bitterness, that blame. That's the only way. So this is the message that Paul preaches. There's a righteous standard. You lack the self-control to do it and you're gonna be judged. That's a heavy, hard message, huh? All of us are hopelessly lost and we're underneath God's judgment. Yeah, that's the message. God bless you. <laughs> Back up. Because he begins with something else. It's verse 24. At the very end of it, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's the key. See, this is the steps that get us to the final realization, I need Jesus. So Wednesday night, just this last Wednesday, and I don't know if this is revolutionary to me because I'm just a bonehead or what, because it's so simple that I, just, I missed it. But I'm reading over the testimony of Paul. So Paul's given this testimony in chapter 22 where he's before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the rule keepers. If anyone could come close to being righteous just based on their own behavior, it's the Pharisee. Like they took the law to a level you and I cannot imagine. The Bible says, don't eat blood. If a Pharisee swallowed a gnat, he would put his finger down his throat and puke so that he did not eat blood because the gnat has a tiny bit of blood in it. That's the level of law keeper. 
And Paul tells this to them. Listen, you guys are JV compared to me. I was varsity when it came to trying to attain this righteous standard. I was varsity. But then he says this in the next sentence, to rule keepers, he says, but listen, Jesus didn't save me when I was doing everything right. He saved me when I was doing everything wrong. That's when he saved me. That Jesus saves us, not when we're doing everything right, but Jesus saves us when we are doing everything wrong. And isn't that the very definition of being saved? You gotta be saved when you're doing something wrong, right? If you're drowning, you need to be saved, why? Because you're doing something wrong, you're breathing water and that's not healthy. You gotta be saved. Man, is that good news or what? That Jesus came to save people that are doing it wrong. So Paul puts it like this, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying. Like you gotta trust this saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am, not I was, I am the chief. Jesus came to save you and me when we're doing it wrong. And he continues to want to save you and me when we're doing it wrong. Like I have a new definition for sin and it's this, doing life wrong. Ultimately, that's what sin is. There's a right way to do life and a wrong way to do life. And Jesus comes and saves us when we start doing life wrong. And Paul would say this, present tense, he's still saving me from that. He's still saving me from doing life wrong. That's what he does. It's faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the good news. That when I'm weak, he's strong. That when I'm broken, he heals me. That when I'm wrong, he makes me right. That's the good news. Man, is there anything sweeter than that? I don't think so. So when I was like studying this on Saturday morning, I started singing a hymn. I'm not gonna sing it today because I want you to go away happy. (laughs) But I'll read it for you because it captures this whole idea. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That's the good news. Jesus saves us when we're doing it wrong. Today, when we're doing it wrong, he saves us and we trust him. Jesus saved me. Saved me from doing life wrong. Brilliant. That's the good news. Jesus saves us from our sins. Amen? Amen. So here's what we're gonna do. If you need prayer, prayer that you could have grace to trust him more. That's been my prayer all day yesterday. Jesus, when I'm doing life wrong, show it to me and give me the grace to start doing it right. It's just been my prayer. I'll tell you what, just put a smile on my face because he's gonna save me from that. Come down here, we'd love to pray for you. Same thing. You can pray for me, please. 
I want more grace to trust Jesus to save me from doing life wrong. And then we have baptism. Baptism is the ultimate object lesson of being saved. You're drowned. We don't hold you down too long. And we're gonna pull you back out. And you're resurrected into newness of life. It's a demonstration of exactly this message. I couldn't make the righteous standard. I don't have the self-control to do it. I know judgment is coming and Jesus saves me from it. He puts me in these waters. I die and I'm resurrected into newness of life in Jesus Christ, saved from my sins. And you come up and you do that. It's not the water that saves you. Who saves you? Jesus. Trust him, right? So you can get prayer, you know, baptism. You can hang around for a second. I'm gonna have Megan and Esther play just a little bit of music, but you can leave, no problem. Or you can wait and listen and maybe pray and say, Jesus, today, save me from my sins. And that's what he'll do. And so, Father, this day, we thank you for your son who saves us from our sins. Not just past tense, but present tense. Saves us from doing life wrong. Would you give to Edgewater? Would you give to this body? Would you give to me grace to trust him more? When we go from here rejoicing that we know the savior of our souls. We pray this in your son's powerful name. Amen.